By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall any guests or contributors to the podcast or any employees, associates, or affiliates of the Neuroendocrine Cancer Awareness Network be responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Nets Get Real. I hope your new year is uh, is going well so far. Um, we're happy to be back into the swing of things. Uh, and not only are we going back into all of the podcasts every other week, but we also have a monthly live stream, uh, live stream Q&A. We've been getting doctors to come in on a sa- every second Saturday. I'm sorry. Yes, every second Saturday of every month, 12 p.m. Eastern. And uh, yeah, we, we let you guys text in questions. So if you want more information on that, go ahead over to netcancerawareness.org or uh, any of our social medias at netcanceraware. Um, also, don't forget, March and April, we have more conferences coming up, more in-person conferences in March. On March 11th, we'll be going to Silver Springs, Maryland, and April 15th, we'll be in Omaha, Nebraska. So all that information is up on netcancerawareness.org. And uh, today we are going to have uh, a non-oncologist from the University of Illinois Cancer Center, uh, Dr. Uh, Sheikha Sheikha Jane. And uh, she's going to be talking to us about uh, cardiac complications uh, from neuroendocrine tumors. So without further ado... How are you, Dr. Jane? I'm great. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. No, thank thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know you're you've got a little bit of chaos going around in the house, so <laughs> I, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, construction is always a disaster when it comes to home ownership, but we'll yes. make it work. Hopefully, you don't hear any banging in the background. <laughs> yeah, and you and you've got you've done really well with your background. It's it's great. So everybody watching on the NCAN YouTube page. This is this this was a, a makeshift thing, and it looks great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate it. So, uh, so quick question. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your practice, and and how long you've been practicing for. Yeah. So I'm an associate professor of medicine at the University of Illinois Cancer Center in Chicago. Um, I'm a GI medical oncologist, and I subspecialize in neuroendocrine tumors. So I see a lot of neuroendocrine cancer patients. Um, I've been doing this. uh, You're going to age me. Um, I've been doing this now for, let's see, I started practicing in 2015. So how many years is that? Eight years now? Um, Yep. And, uh, and I love what I do. I mean, I feel blessed to have been able to do this for as long as I have so far. And I think patients um, in the neuroendocrine community are incredible individuals. I've met so many people who inspire me on, on many different levels. So I'm, I'm honored to be able to do this in my, in my life and in my career. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what, what actually got you into uh, becoming a net specialist? 
You know, it's interesting. I never saw this as what I was going to be doing. I um, I really did not think neuroendocrine was where I was going. But there was one patient uh, in particular who really set me on this path. When I met this woman, she was having all sorts of symptoms. She was miserable. And she was like, I'm just existing. I'm just existing. And I have this tumor. And I'm miserable. And I don't know what to do. And we started her treatments. And Three years later, she said, you know, Dr. Jane, you've gotten me to the point where I'm not existing. I'm actually living and thriving and enjoying my life. And to me, it was such a powerful statement where she came to me and she was miserable and having major symptoms and felt like at a loss and felt like she didn't want to live anymore because she was so miserable. And we got her from a point of just existing and doing her day to day to living and thriving um, with active metastatic neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, and I think to me, that one patient really showed me how much of a difference being on the right treatment plan could be, um, getting the right uh, input could be. Um, and since then, I've seen patients, you know, some patients are curable, some patients are, are not, some patients are palliative, some patients are um, living with hormone therapy for years. And it's just such a wide uh, variety of types of patient care I'm able to deliver. Uh, that's really for me, the reason why I love this community and love treating these patients. That's great. That's great. Now, um, what I what I like to ask uh, doctors is uh, because a lot of people they they just go to a doctor and then they say, okay, whatever whatever you say, doctor, whatever, and then they just do it. So why why is it so important, especially with neuroendocrine, for patients to be involved with their treatment plan? Yeah, you know, there are, I have the patients who come to me and they're like, you're the doctor, just tell me what to do. And you know, that that's fine. There's some patients who prefer to be treated that way. The thing that I think that's so important with neuroendocrine tumors, especially is it's not as common as, you know, lung cancer or colon cancer. And so there are many people who just have never seen patients with NETS. Patients who come and they see a doctor who may have learned about it in medical school, but hasn't actually treated a patient. And so I think it's really important as patients, if you have access to the information, if you're able to do some reading, to educate yourself as well, because you may end up knowing more than your doctor. At the beginning of my career, when I just started seeing neuroendocrine patients, I literally had patients who came in with binders of information and they were like, I am the expert, I'm going to teach you. And I appreciated it because I learned so much from those patients who had been dealing with this for so many years and came in with all of this knowledge and personal experience going through the process. So I think if you're able to, if you have the ability to do any reading on your own, I think it's really powerful and it can help you and your physician really work as a team to help you get to a point where your symptoms are well controlled. That's great. That's great. Now, um, in regards to getting proper care, what do you think is the most important decision a patient can make? I think it's really reasonable for you to ask your treating physician, how many patients have you taken care of with neuroendocrine? Um, if you don't feel like they've seen enough, or if you feel like, you know, they're not as comfortable, it's totally reasonable to get a second opinion at, for example, an academic center. Um, I tell all of my patients that finding the right oncologist is kind of like dating where, you know, someone's personality may not be jiving with you, or it might be that you just don't get the right feeling. So you really need to find um, a team that cares about you and that you actually feel comfortable talking to and, and engaging with. So I think that 
the most important thing is one, finding somebody you're comfortable with, but also especially for nets and for neuroendocrine cancers to make sure that you have somebody who is up to date on the data, who has taken care of patients like you before. Um, and if not, it's totally reasonable to ask for a second opinion. We don't get insulted. I don't get insulted when patients go for second opinions. Um, and I know many of my colleagues actually recommend patients go to especially academic institutions if that's an opportunity that you have, um, if you're able to go there for, for at least an evaluation and a determination in a multidisciplinary way. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, we, we I, funny enough, the last episode, we, we, uh, I was talking to uh, Dr. Jason Starr, who was talking about how uh, sometimes egos get hurt and stuff like that. But if, if there, if a doctor's ego is getting hurt because you're getting a second opinion, you, you should definitely find in yourself a new doctor. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I mean, I tell my patients all the time, I love when my patients go for second opinions because sometimes I learn something. And not only that, I, it's just, the medicine and oncology especially is incredibly collaborative. We Nobody knows everything. And cancer medicine changes so fast that it's actually really beneficial to get more brains involved because some people have sure. different, you know, education levels or experience or have seen more of these cases than, than me. So um, I'm all about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so today you're going to talk to us a little bit about um, uh, uh, cardiac complications with net tumors. So uh, without further ado, the floor is yours. All right, so we're going to talk about carcinoid heart disease. Um, what is it and how to prevent it? And uh, I'm going to try to keep this uh, brief because I don't want to bore you, but I think it's important to talk a little bit about carcinoid syndrome and then talk a little bit about carcinoid heart disease and how to diagnose it, how to treat it, and also how to prevent it. So first, carcinoid. We know carcinoids are small-growing neuroendocrine tumors. Most carcinoids don't produce symptoms because the hormones are typically metabolized in the liver when they go through the liver. Um, but the challenge becomes when carcinoid syndrome occurs, it's often because the lesions, the tumors have actually gone to the liver, thus bypassing the ability for the liver to break down the actual hormones that cause the carcinoid syndrome. When it comes to um, carcinoid syndrome, the things that we typically see um, is patients who have mid-gut carcinoids with METs in the retral peritoneum, which is back kind of near the kidney area. Those tip patients can sometimes present with carcinoid syndrome without metastatic disease. And symptoms that we often see in carcinoid syndrome are episodic flushing, diarrhea, um, heart palpitations. But one thing that we worry about is patients who present with right-sided valvular heart disease. So again, carcinoid syndrome, this picture is a pretty, uh, pretty good depiction of the flushing that can happen in the face. You get really red. Um, cutaneous flushing, uh, you can get a cough, wheezing, sometimes shortness of breath. Um, you can get diarrhea, cramping. Uh, and then in the heart, you can develop this pulmonic and tricuspid valve thickening and stenosis and fibrosis of the endocardium. So essentially what that means is you can get some scarring in the heart. And we'll talk a little bit more about how that happens and, um, and what that means for you as a patient. So before we get any further, you need to understand a little bit about how the heart works. So when we talk about the heart and how the heart works, the aorta is the main blood vessel that provides blood supply to the rest of the body. Um, the pulmonary artery is what provides blood supply to the lungs. The pulmonary artery is from the right side of the heart and the aorta is from the left side of the heart. Now what happens is the superior vena cava is a blood vessel that brings blood 
that um, does not, that uh, brings blood into the heart that then goes to the left side of the heart. This can get very complicated and confusing and this picture um, that I'm showing uh, hopefully depicts it a little bit. But what happens is when blood comes in from the superior vena cava, that blood is coming from the lungs. So that blood from the lungs has oxygen in it because it's gotten oxygen from the lungs. It then goes to the right heart, goes to the left heart, and then that is how it gets to the rest of the body. Now, what happens is in, um, in heart failure, you have issues with um, blood getting into, into the heart. Um, and so we will talk a little bit about, about how heart failure can actually impact you symptomatically. But the other thing that's really important to remember, if you can see here in the right side of the heart, you've got the tricuspid valve here. And in the left side of the heart, you've got the mitral valve. So those valves are really important when it comes to moving blood from the top of the heart to the bottom of the heart, which then goes to the rest of the body. So that will come into play when we talk a little bit about how heart failure occurs in carcinoid patients. So what is carcinoid heart disease? Well, carcinoid heart disease is um, when the heart is impacted in patients who have typically advanced neuroendocrine tumors. And again, it usually involves the right side of the heart, the heart valves, and it can eventually lead to right heart failure. So if you look here, in people who don't have carcinoid heart disease, people who don't have neuroendocrine tumors, usually the most common type of heart failure we see is left-sided heart failure. And what happens is that the body loses its ability to pump blood to the entire body. So as I said, the left side of the heart is pumping blood to the rest of the body, and that blood has been oxygenated in the lungs. When you have left-sided heart failure, you have a backup and the blood does not get to the rest of your body. Right-sided heart failure is different because that occurs when the heart loses its ability to move the oxygen-depleted blood to the lungs to pick up new oxygen. So that's most often due to left-sided heart failure, but in patients with carcinoid heart disease, it actually is due to the carcinoid itself. So again, this can get very confusing and complicated. So I'm a pictures person. So as we go through, I'll show you with pictures how this happens. But to understand how often this type of things happen, carcinoid heart disease typically happens in about 50% of patients who have carcinoid syndrome. And it can be the initial presentation in as many as 20% of patients with um, carcinoid heart disease or with carcinoid syndrome. Carcinoid heart disease does account for much of the morbidity and, um, and mortality that we see in patients with carcinoid. And again, right-sided valvular involvement is the most common. And usually it's in patients who have small bowel neuroendocrine neoplasms, less commonly lung, large bowel, pancreas, and appendiceal. Um, ovarian, we rarely see it. And same thing with unknown primary, about 18% of patients. People who are at risk for developing heart disease from carcinoid, typically patients who have a high BNP, that's a really good biomarker for screening patients who have carcinoid syndrome to see how high um, of risk they are for developing carcinoid heart disease. If you have a 24-hour urinary 5-HIAA level over 300 per 24 hours, that's another useful marker to identify those at risk. And typically, when we look at patients who have carcinoid heart disease, we see plaque-like deposits composed of smooth muscle cells, extracellular matrix, and overlying endothelial layer, which, again, kind of equates to a type of scarring that we see in the heart, which can then lead to valve dysfunction. 
So this is a picture again of the heart. You can see this is the right side of the heart. Here's the tricuspid valve. And this is where you see right here some of these carcinoid plaques. And what happens is the valve, the tricuspid valve is supposed to open, let blood through, and then close to prevent blood from going back upwards. Unfortunately, when you have this type of carcinoid plaque, what happens is the valve opens and it oftentimes is not able to prevent blood from going backwards. And so you have a valve that's not functioning as well as you would like it to function. So the causes and risk factors of carcinoid heart disease, as I mentioned, about 19 to 60%. So there's a very wide range of patients who are affected by carcinoid syndrome develop this disease. And it's thought that it's due to serotonin that induces fibrosis in the valves of the right heart. Especially this occurs in the tricuspid valve. Symptoms, sometimes patients who develop carcinoid heart disease may not have any symptoms at all, or they could present with feeling tired, shortness of breath, swelling like edema or ascites, which is um, fluid in the abdominal cavity. So for some reason, this is uh, showing up like this, but we will go with it. So with neuroendocrine tumors, what do you do to screen for uh, carcinoid heart disease? Every six months, we typically recommend that patients um, get uh, a BNP level checked. If your BNP is less than 260, then you're at lower risk for developing um, carcinoid heart disease. If your BNP is over 260, then it is possible you're having clinical presentations of heart disease, and it's then recommended that you get an echocardiogram. If the echocardiogram is normal, then you go back to the every six-month assessment. However, if the um, echocardiogram is abnormal, then it's really important that we get a cardiologist involved. Sometimes we utilize cardiac MRIs. This slide behind that for some reason is not showing up here properly. Um, sometimes we recommend MRIs um, and MRIs can be very useful to assess for uh, carcinoid uh, or neuroendocrine tumors that have actually metastasized to the heart. Um, and that can actually be a way that we um, identify metastatic carcinoid. Um, in that case, if the carcinoid itself has moved to the heart, there is a possibility that you could end up with um, left-sided heart failure if the tumor is on the left side of the heart. So the pathogenesis of the fibrosis in the carcinoid heart disease, it's not very well understood, um, but it's thought that it's due to the effect of the neuropeptides like serotonin and the growth factors in the bloodstream. And so the thought is that this chronic exposure to the excessive circulating hormones um, is a likely contributing factor to the fibrosis that we see. And then this fibrosis especially affects the right side of the heart, which then results in tricuspid inefficiency, and it can also result in pulmonary um, stenosis. So if you look at this picture down here, it's showing neuroendocrine tumor cells uh, releasing the, um, the hormonal agents that I mentioned and other bioactive substances. Typically what happens is it's broken down in the liver and you end up getting rid of it in the urine and you don't have any symptoms of carcinoid uh, syndrome. Unfortunately, again, when the tumors are able to bypass the liver, that's when we start seeing things like carcinoid syndrome and carcinoid heart disease. So this is another example of how right-sided heart failure works. So when you have the tricuspid valve not working, when, um, when you have right-sided heart failure, what ends up happening is, if you look here, you've got the um, blood backs up 
into the liver. So you end up with a lar- enlarged liver. Blood backs up into the kidneys. And so you end up with kidney failure. Blood backs up into the legs. So you end up with swelling in your legs, swelling in the abdomen with fluid. Um, you end up with uh, blood vessel congestion. Uh, basically what's happening is if the right heart is not able to pump blood, if it's not able to pump the blood into the lungs in order to get um, oxygen into the lungs, then everything is backed up and the entire body ends up with blood flow backups. So what are the symptoms we see then with this right-hearted-sighted heart failure? Fatigue, peripheral venous pressure, you get an enlarged liver and spleen, Um, you can end up with uh, anorexia, GI distress, weight gain, and all of this can be due to the fact that um, you've got blood flow backing up into the body when the blood's supposed to be going forward into the heart. So what do you do for patients with carcinoid heart disease? How do you treat them? Well, you want to prevent progression by controlling the carcinoid syndrome, decreasing hormone production, and also decreasing tumor growth. Typically, the medical therapy is limited to symptom control. You can do valve surgery for carcinoid heart disease, but typically we only do that for patients who are symptomatic, who have controlled carcinoid syndrome. Ways that you can control uh, the hormones, we know about octreotide that's been around since the 80s and lanreotide are both very effective ways to control the amount of hormone that's released. Newer drug that's come out recently is telitrostat, which is utilized to block the conversion of tryptophan into 5-HIAA. And that actually has been shown to have some benefit when it comes to controlling carcinoid syndrome, as well as theoretically preventing carcinoid heart disease. So how do you manage these patients? After you've established a diagnosis, the next thing you need to do is, again, you need to control the hormones. You need to make sure you don't have uh, high levels of somatostatin analogs circulating in the bloodstream. If somebody has mild carcinoid heart disease, again, you do every six-month clinical assessments and echocardiograms. As long as they're not having symptoms or progression, you just keep monitoring. If they start developing symptoms of heart disease, you need to medically manage. If they have moderate to severe heart disease, you need to increase the amount of time you're getting the echo to every three months. And if they develop severe symptoms, then you need to assess primary neuroendocrine tumor disease status and evaluate whether a surgical intervention is necessary. So patients who are refractory to these somatostatin analogs like octreotide and lanreotide, you can sometimes increase the dose to off-label doses. You can add the telitrostat, like I mentioned. You can think about PRRT therapy. And in some cases, we sometimes consider interferon alpha. We don't recommend drugs like uh, Everolimus or Passereotide for patients like this. And Cape-Tem or Cape-Cytobine and Temozolomide, it can be really useful for debulking, especially in patients who are pancreatic and lung neuroendocrine tumors. And it can also be pretty useful in well-differentiated small bowel nets that have a hierarchy 67. But again, the Cape-Tem is not really for hormone control. It's more for debulking for people who have larger tumors. For um, the dosing that you utilize for the somatostatin analogs, if you're really focused on hormone control, start with a shorter acting drug and then overlap with a long acting. So um, you can start with short acting 100 to 600 mics per day, um, given over two to four times a day. 
And the long acting, I typically start with octreotide 20 to 30 monthly or ran lanreotide 120 um, monthly. And then you can titrate it um, as needed for symptom control. And then for tumor control, you don't actually need to do an overlap with the short acting um, unless it's a functional tumor. So it's causing symptoms and producing a lot of hormones. Um, again, standard treatment dosing, octreotide 30 monthly or a lanreotide 120 monthly. And there isn't really a lot of data that supports going off label and going above the standard of dose for um, somatostatin analogs if you're just doing it for tumor control as opposed to for hormone control. So when you're talking about controlling tumor growth, again, this is a really great diagram of how uh, to go about managing these patients. So if they're poorly differentiated, you're not going to be as worried about carcinoid heart disease unless they have tumors in the heart itself, because these are typically less functional tumors. So those patients typically will need to get chemotherapy like a doublet, like cisplatin and etoposide. Um, but again, if patients have more extensive, well-differentiated disease, if they're symptomatic, especially, um, you can give widespread systemic treatment that we've already discussed. Um, if it's liver dominant uh, disease, sometimes these patients benefit from taste and radioembolization. Um, and again, the reason I'm focusing on controlling their disease is because when you have unregulated somatostatin um, or other hormones, you put yourself at higher risk for developing this right-sided heart failure from carcinoid syndrome. It's really important that any patient who's treated for these types of uh, complications um, are involved in a multidisciplinary approach. So it could include everybody from medical oncology to surgery to endocrinology to pathology um, to nuclear medicine. As you can see, there's a lot of different um, brilliant minds that uh, discuss and get involved to make sure these patients are well managed. Um, especially for those who develop cardiology complications, the cardiologists are your best friends um, because they can really manage the symptoms of hormone excess like hypotension, hypertension, and valvular disease. They can also help along with our cardiovascular surgeon colleagues when it comes to metastatic disease in the heart and how to manage that, whether surgical options are necessary. Um, and and they can also talk to you about the fact that there can be complications from drugs like bradycardia or a low heart rate from somatostatin analogs and reduced ejection fraction from TKIs. So having a good relationship between the medical oncologist and the cardiologist are really important. So is there a role for tilatrostatin in carcinoid heart disease? There's a trial going on. Um, there's a trial that was presented at the European Neuroendocrine Tumor Society in 2016, the Telestars trial. Um, two patients with carcinoid heart disease were in this trial, and one showed recurrent carcinoid valve disease on the tricuspid and pulmonic bioprosthetic tissue, replaced valves, and one demonstrated carcinoid valve disease on the native and uh, native tricuspid and pulmonic valves. So um, there's a thought from this study and from future studies that telitrostat may actually provide some benefit in these patients. Um, the, this trial that's currently ongoing is a randomized phase three trial looking at telitrostat and um, somatostatin analogs versus placebo plus somatostatin analogs. And they're looking at the percent change in the BNP because remember a higher BNP um, is a good predictor for whether you're going to be at high risk for developing heart disease in these patients. Um, so I'll be really interested to see how these, um, how this data matures. And I think that it's incredibly important to remember, again, that this is a very complex and uh, 
complicated uh, disease. So it's incredibly important to get all hands on deck and, and talk with multiple specialists, especially as complications may arise from a developing carcinoid heart disease. Um, but many people don't end up developing these complications, especially if their, um, their hormone levels are well controlled and their BNP is being closely monitored. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane. That was uh, that was really great. It was really great. Thank you for uh, for for sharing all that information with us, um, everybody. If you like what you hear here, uh, please make sure that you go over to our YouTube page. You could see a number of different uh, uh, presentations from past conferences and live streams and and uh, virtual conferences. Uh, more uh, more about cardiac uh, carcinoid. Um, and, uh, please make sure that you give us a five-star review, make sure that you subscribe, you, uh, you hit that, hit the bell. So this way we could try and, you know, beat those algorithms so that we can get a little bit more of this information out there. Uh, so once again, Dr. Jane, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us and everybody at home. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on Nets Get Real. All right. And that's.